Welcome back to the Top Flight Podcast as we continue our Road to Moscow series, our penultimate Road to Moscow episode because the World Cup semifinals just finished and the World Cup final is going to be on Sunday. Ori Benatar here along with Khaled Abdullah. Khaled, what do you think about the semifinals overall in terms of excitement? I think they were great. I mean, uh, Belgium, France started off excellent. Um, it started to peter out a little bit, um, you know, once France sat further and further back. And it became a bit of a, a farce in the last 10 minutes with uh, all the time wasting and the, the antics and stuff. But uh, for the first, I'd say, 60 minutes, it was an incredible match. And for England, Croatia, I, I mean, all 120 minutes were excellent. It was uh, edge of your seat, thriller type stuff that you, uh, you know, it's, it's what we expect from a World Cup semifinal for sure. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. It was uh, it was dramatic. The France-Belgium game kind of lost a bit of its drama once Belgium was not able to get many shots off in that second half. France beating Belgium 1-0 in the semis. Samuel Umtiti's header. It's the World Cup of set pieces continuing, and it continued with the other semifinal. Uh, Kieran Trippier's free kick in the fifth minute for England, and then Croatia scoring two unanswered. But uh, I guess we'll start with France and Belgium since that was the first game. France just looks like they're the best team in this tournament. But, you know, Belgium, what kind of happened there? I felt that Roberto Martinez, he clearly used the same formation and the same sort of tactic that he was uh, going with in the Brazil game, and it actually worked with Fellaini and Witzel in the middle. I don't think it really worked that well against France. Why do you think that was the case? Yeah, so I, I'm pretty sure he uh, he had Fellaini out wide as kind of a wing back, and I think that that was his first mistake. Um, so he had a 3-4-2-1. And that four in midfield, it was. It felt like it was four of the same player. You know, Fellaini, Witzel, Dembele, Chadley. Like, you know, they're all central midfielders. Not too creative. They can, you know, they have some magic here and there. Uh, but I think Fellaini looked lost out wide a lot. Um, I know he drifted in and tried to be that point man quite a bit. But I felt like, aside from Hazard and De Bruyne, they didn't have much width. Uh, you know, both of those players tend to drift inside and try to, you know, get shots off and create from the center of the park. So I thought aside from those two guys, they didn't have the natural width that somebody like Yana uh, uh, Carrasco or even like a Yanazai could have could have brought to the side. Um, I think that we saw when when Dries Mertens came on late in the game and he was pinging in those crosses, uh, the Belgium attack looked, you know, much more potent. And to have that point man of Lukaku, you know, bringing those crosses down and, and attacking balls in the box versus, you know, trying to create through the middle against the packed French defense. I think that that made the difference, but it was it was too little too late, and they, they didn't create enough chances. Yeah, and I think Croatia has some good game film to work with. Watching that semifinal, they're going to look at that and say, creating through the middle is going to be really, really difficult because you've got N'Golo Kante and Paul Pogba in there. And get first off, getting past Pogba is difficult, but it's possible. But getting past Kante is basically an impossible task. I've never seen the guy not play a good game. Yeah, he's been incredible. If you know, if he doesn't win the Golden Ball, I mean, assuming France uh, wins on Sunday, if he doesn't win the Golden Ball, then I think you know it's, it's a complete travesty because, uh, I mean, Mbappe has stood out with the goals and the flashiness, but... But this France team does not make it to the final without Conte you know, doing the work that he does. Yeah, I totally agree. N'Golo Conte, it's either going to be Conte or Modric, in my opinion, that who I think should win. But knowing the way the history of the, the Golden Ball has worked and how they look at the tournament, 
I feel that a defender really is only going to get it if the team is, you know, not conceding at all. And in the case of N'Golo Conte, who's a defensive midfielder, he never scores. He really never gets assists. He just does everything well for the French team that isn't in the stat sheet. So I feel like the people voting are not really going to vote for him, and they might go for someone like Pogba or someone like Mbappe. I think if Mbappe or Griezmann score a goal or two in the final, it is going to go to them. And then I think for Croatia, it has to be Luka Modric. But France definitely going to be the favorites in the final against Croatia. But then in the let's talk now about Croatia-England. Man, I think that England, after that early goal, I think they just kind of assumed they were going to sit on it. It kind of looked like they were. There was a lack of creativity in the middle, but also they were constantly passing it back to Jordan Pickford, and every time he would kick it out of his own box, they would just lose possession, and I feel like it didn't seem like England were going after it. You know, After that, Kane hit the post, somehow missed that one. England just did not get clear chances. One shot on target, Supersic not making a single save. Yeah, and the thing is, you know, that that's that's what's going to haunt them, I think, throughout the summer or for the rest of the summer. They they had the chances to kill off that game. Uh, there was, like you said, that Kane chance where he had two pretty good bites at it. He had Sterling, you know, with acres of space. If he just taps it over to him, it's an easy tap in. England's up 2-0, and I think Croatia collapses. Uh, there was that other chance that Lingard had near the top of the box where uh, I think he he rushed it. He didn't he he thought he had less time than he did. And if he buries that, you know it's three zero and uh, you know England's in the final easily. So they they couldn't kill off the game when they had the chance. And like you said, they started to sit further and further back. They sat on that lead. And there's that that cliche of of scoring too soon and you know. Scoring in the fifth minute without another goal is definitely scoring too soon because they just they invited too much pressure. They let a very tired looking and fatigued looking Croatia side come into the game slowly, and then once they had that goal, it they just exploded and and caught their second win. Totally, that second win really propelled Croatia to being the team you look at in extra time, saying, "Oh, if anyone's going to win this game in extra time, it's going to be Croatia." They did not look like they had played over three hundred minutes of football in the last ten days. England looked a little sluggish; they looked a little slow in that second half, and they just were not able to create much chances. And you know, Raheem Sterling, I think he played okay in this tournament when he didn't have the ball. He was making great runs; he was getting by the defenders. But once he had the ball, it just seemed like he didn't know what decision to make in the box, whether it's a fake shot not shooting early enough, not passing it. And that, I think, was the... He he lacked that killer instinct that England really needed in the box because Harry Kane is not the type of forward that's going to come back in midfield and try and make runs past defenders. He's going to be near around the edge of the box. If he gets an open chance, he'll shoot. And Harry Kane might be considered one of the one of the luckiest golden boot winners in World Cup history. Three penalties, two headers off of corners, and a deflected goal that he didn't even know about. So overall, what what do you feel, what do you think? One out of ten rating Harry Kane's tournament. I mean, I think like they they exceeded expectations by making the semifinal, and uh, you know we've seen big players miss penalties. We saw Ronaldo miss the penalty that that could have won them the group. We saw. Uh, you know, same case for Messi against Iceland. So, you know, I, I wouldn't just wave off those penalties as, you know, not an achievement. I think, you know, to step up in that moment and bury them, that, that takes a lot of uh, a lot of guts. So I, I would say before this game, he was at a nine. I think after this game, maybe seven and a half, just because he had those chances. He had that, that, that one chance that, 
you know, as a striker, if you really want to be a world-class striker and if you want to be, you know, the best player in the Premier League, like some people think he is, you've got to bury that chance. And it just, you know, I know it's going to haunt him for a long time, uh, you know, watching those replays and thinking about, about what could have been if he scores, you know, instead of hitting the post. So. Yeah, in general, England, you know, unable to create many chances in open play. They scored 12 goals at this World Cup, which is the most they've ever scored. Granted, they got six of them against Panama, um, but nine of their 12 goals in this World Cup coming off of set pieces. That's 75%. And I think... Which was expected, right? I mean, coming in, we we didn't we looked at their midfield options, and we saw some finishers uh, in Lingard and Ali, or in Ali, but we didn't see any any creativity. And I think you know, like you said, they scored nine of the nine of their goals from set pieces, and that's pretty much what we expected. And I definitely think that for Croatia and England, a bit of luck came into how well they did in this tournament, especially for England when you have the likes of Panama and Tunisia in your group. You know, England almost didn't beat Tunisia. Remember, they had to score a winner in the 90th minute off of a corner to beat Tunisia 2-1. And then you get Panama and absolutely destroy them. And then also you don't run into, you know, maybe a Poland in the round of 16. You run into Colombia, who's a very good team. England getting by then, that was probably, I think, their, their best, you know, win. Uh, beating Sweden, you know, you don't run into Germany in that scenario. And in the semifinals, you don't run into someone like Argentina or Spain, which many people expected that Spain probably the big favorite there. And even for Croatia, it's a bit of luck. You know, you win your group. Argentina, Iceland, and Nigeria all kind of underperformed to what we expected them to do. You face Denmark, who was probably the expected opponent for Croatia. If they came in first in the group, you avoid France in the round of 16. And then you don't play Spain in the quarterfinal. You play Russia albeit you had to win in a penalty shootout and then you don't get to you don't have to play you know Belgium or Germany I mean Germany not making the round of 16 really set the course for Croatia making the final and England making the semis because England had a lot of luck with the draws and the teams they played Croatia had a bit of luck too on their side yeah I mean uh, with 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 this kind of thing I'm the way I see it is is you can only play who they put in front of you you know you don't you don't choose your opponent you know, it's not Croatia or England's fault that, that Germany, you know, laid an egg. Uh, but I feel like Croatia, they had the more difficult group and they were the more con- much more convincing of, of the teams coming into it. You know, they they handily beat Argentina. They, you know, they beat Iceland with kind of their B squad. They beat Nigeria. So they were very convincing. With England, it was a little bit different. Like you said, they took a last minute goal to beat Tunisia, who's tough. You know, they're a resilient team, but nothing special. You know, Panama was just happy to be there, and that Belgium game was was essentially worthless. So they got a little bit lucky with with the way the, the fixtures were laid out. But you know, you can only play who they put in front of you. It's not their fault that James Rodriguez wasn't healthy. Um, you know, it's not their fault that that Germany laid an egg. Like I said, it's not their fault that that Sweden advanced. And again, they're another one of those resilient but not spectacular teams. So uh, you know, they did well for the opponents that they're, they're put in front of them. And that's all you can do. Yeah, and I totally agree with you on that. It's just interesting to think about, you know, the way that England performed in this World Cup, not scoring many goals in open play, getting 50% of their goals against Panama. You just think if they were maybe in a different group, if they were in Croatia's group or if they were in Germany's group, you know, how would things, you know, be different? But for Belgium and England, I, for Belgium and England, I think they outperformed what people thought. I think a lot of people thought Belgium was a quarterfinalist going to lose to Brazil. And many people didn't have England even getting past the round of 16 if they had played Colombia or Poland. Quarterfinals was kind of their high point. 
Belgium and England both out, you know, overachieved, and they're going to be back at Euro 2020. They're going to do really well. But we get another meaningless Belgium-England game. But this one will be a lot better. Um, how many... Which stars do you expect to play in that third-place game? Because a lot of the times you see a couple of bench players play, and it's going to be pretty high-scoring. I mean, I, I think that both th both coaches will try to identify the guys who maybe on the tail end of their careers who, you know, this might be their last World Cup or give some of the young guys. I think it's going to be a nice mix of that where they try to give players their farewell, you know, their swan song at the World Cup, but also try to bring in some of the younger players, uh, maybe like a Thorgan Hazard, for example, who played in that, that last group stage game, maybe give him a shot, see what he's capable of, things like that. So I expect an entertaining game. Uh, I mean, it's again, it's, it's not as fun when there's nothing really at stake, but, uh, you know, anytime there's, there's more soccer on, there's more World Cup soccer on, especially, uh, I'm all for that, so. Agreed. I would say I think Belgium will win the game. I think it would be great if Roberto Martinez had Eden and Thorgan Hazard starting, you know, get the brothers on the same pitch together. Last game of the tournament, you know, who knows if Thorgan is going to make another World Cup squad. I think he can. He's definitely an up-and-coming player, the younger Hazard brother. Uh, but one thing that I wanted to mention before we get to the final was just in general, there's been a lot of conversations about rules and some, some stuff that we saw in the semifinals. For example, in the France-Belgium semifinal, Kylian Mbappe with his, you know, really Bush League time-wasting at the end with the juggling and the throwing the ball away. So there's that. But then also in the England-Croatia game, there were many instances where they miscalled a throw-in or corner. They gave it, you know, a goal kick to Croatia. Should have been a corner to England. What did you what did you think of that stuff? Because for me, I'm thinking time wasting. You automatically add a minute of stoppage time if you do that. If that was the case, it's not going to happen anymore. And also for the you know the corners, the miss calling on the corners, can't the VAR ref just tell the head ref, hey, that's a corner, that's not a goal kick, and then they just change it? Yeah, I mean for the time wasting, that's that's a big big thing for a lot of people. It's a big pet peeve, especially for the casual fans. You know, you, you especially around the World Cup time, you see a lot of people who aren't normally watching soccer they they see that and they you know they don't really get it or they, it's it's really upsetting the optics are are terrible you know seeing guys flop around or or push each other and get into shoving matches just to waste time so i'm all for that if there's anything like that like you said with mbappe you know doing that silly thing where he's trying to hand the ball back and then he throws it and then he gets shoved and it just just looks really dumb i would add a minute of stoppage time because it's really silly to see you know 6 minutes on the clock or, you know, there's six minutes of stoppage time. You see maybe 90 seconds of that wasted by guys shoving each other, and then the ref blows the whistle at, at 96. You know, it's like, where is that added time going? Why isn't that being added on? So I think that's an easy fix. As far as the corners and the throw-ins, if it can be an instant decision, then I say go for it. If it's going to bog down the game where, you know, you're going to have to do reviews because sometimes it's like there's a – a ricochet, maybe it comes off this guy's toe or shin or whatever, and you actually have to go to the review booth, then I think that maybe we can save that for extra time because that's when it's really meaningful, kind of like the last two minutes scenario in the NBA. Uh, but the more we get the reviews in, maybe the, the more it's going to slow down and bog down the game and really take away from the enjoyment and the drama of it. Yeah, I can see that being a concern. One thing that I think FIFA's done better than some other sports, the reviews are take are much shorter than what we see in the NFL or in the NBA or in the MLB. Sometimes these obvious calls take, you know, three or to five minutes. NBA especially can be really, really slow when it comes to flagrant foul calls or 
um, you know, technical fouls, maybe an ejection or something like that. But I think because the VAR refs have the screen in front of them and they see the entire game, you know, play for play, pass for pass, I think then, you know, if they trust the VAR of saying, yeah, that's definitely a corner, I don't even think the head official needs to go to the VAR booth to review it. Yeah, they could do similar to that, the goal line technology where it's just a, a ping on his watch where it's like corner, goal kick, goal, whatever, something like that. So, uh, you know, especially in the World Cup semifinal where the stakes are so high, where a corner versus a goal kick can swing a game. So. Uh, if they can do that, if they can make it almost instantaneous where the audience, or at least the television audience, has no idea what's going on, then, uh, you know, I, I think that's that's good to go. Yeah, and especially in a game like that where England is basically, you know, only scores on corners and free kicks, it's a big, it's it, it could swing the game completely. But let's ca- talk about the final now. France against Croatia. Yeah. There was a, a, a really, I, I read an article about uh, Gareth Southgate um, studying NBA teams inbound plays. A friend of mine pointed this out to me, um, where he studied, you know, the movement, this kind of where they're setting screens almost on these free kicks and set pieces. So I know we can, we can laugh and, and joke about, Oh, you know, they couldn't score from open play. They can only score from set pieces, but that was definitely by design. So I think we can give Southgate and his, uh, his cute little vest, uh, you know, more credit than, you know, it's just a freak incident on a, on a set piece that was all by design. And uh, he deserves a lot of credit for that. Agreed. I think he deserves a lot of credit for how well England did in this tournament. He breathed new life into the team. He took young players that had good seasons in the EPL instead of the, the vets that Roy Hodgson was bringing, despite them being injured for the entire season. I'm looking at Jack Wilshire in particular, but yeah, very good, a very good tournament for England, a very good tournament for Belgium, but the world cup final France and Croatia on Sunday, France is either getting that second star, trying to win their first World Cup since 1998. Croatia is trying to become the ninth country ever to win a World Cup and get that first star above their crest. It should be, some people are saying it's going to be, you know, France is going to kill them. It's not going to be close. I think this is going to be a pretty close game. Croatia is a hard-fighting team. Extra time is possible. But, I mean, how far did you have Croatia in your bracket, Khaled? I had them in the semifinal. I had them in the quarters. Who did you have them playing in the semis? I think I had them against Germany. So that's, you know, hmm. it's embarrassing on my part. But. <laughs> okay, yeah, I had them I had them losing to Spain in the quarters and in the top flight bracket that me and Esteban did before the tournament. We actually had France-Croatia round of 16 because Esteban thought, oh, Argentina is going to win the group. And I'm like, come on, man. So France-Croatia final. I think it's going to be a great game. You've got so many great players on display. The midfield especially is going to be packed. That's going to be the battle that everyone's going to be watching. Conte, Pogba, Modric, Rakitic, Brozovic. Um, just so many great players on the field. It's going to be an interesting, interesting contest. But how can Croatia win? Because everyone seems like, you know, France, France, France. They're the best team. They're going to win. How can Croatia win this game and shock the world and win the World Cup? I think they, they have to do what they did against England, kind of. I think France is going to sit back a little bit the way they have been, uh, try to attack them, attack the space behind with Mbappe and Griezmann and, and that pace that they have, use Giroud for the hold-up play and just play off of him. And I think that if uh, if Croatia can muck things up a little bit um, you know, and control the midfield, which they definitely have the talent to do with, with Modric and Rakitic, it's going to be tough against Conte and Pogba, but if they can win that midfield battle, uh, then I think you know they have that that big man for the big occasion with with Mandzukic. 
they have big time players that aren't going to be scared of the uh, you know of the stage of the occasion, and it's going to be tough. I I have France winning somewhat comfortably, maybe by two goals, but uh, you know anything can happen if if they control and win that midfield battle. Yeah, the midfield battle will really determine the winner, but also Mandzukic v Giroud. You know the battle of the clutch big target men. Someone can score a winning goal between those two guys to decide the World Cup. I have France winning two. I have them winning two to one. I think they'll score two goals, maybe get one in the first half, maybe get another in the second, and then Croatia gets one late in the second half just as a consolation, and then they push towards that tying goal. I think it's really hard for a team to win three straight extra time games. It's never happened before in World Cup history, and then go on to win a fourth game, whether it's in 90 minutes against the best team in the tournament or... Croatia somehow taking it to another 120-minute game and trying to win it in extra time or winning it in a penalty shootout. Croatia's played 360-plus minutes in the last 10 days. That is not good for the legs. It's not good for the hammies. It's not good for the lungs. It's just painful, painful, painful. I think France has the big edge. I think they've proven that they're the best team in the world. I think they've proven that they're the best team at this tournament from goalkeeper to defense to midfield to the attack. So I think France are going to be the world champions, and they're going to start what could be a very another French dynasty in world football because they're going to go in as the favorites for Euro 2020, and the youth of this team is going to be able to maybe win another World Cup potentially in Qatar in 2022. Yeah, I think France is, is one of the younger squads at the World Cup, um, and they, they were my pre-tournament pick to win it all. So they they started off a little bit slowly and i thought you know the only one the only team that could beat france is france you know if they uh you know if they had some locker room drama like they've had in the past but i think these guys are just so young maybe their egos aren't quite as as developed as uh some of the big names from uh from the south africa world cup that uh you know if they if they had their minds right if they played as a team then top to bottom like you said from goalkeeper on you know they're too deep at every position. They're world-class too deep at every position, which you can say about maybe one or two other teams at the World Cup. Um, and they have no major flaws. The only flaw is maybe at forward with Giroud, you know, misfiring and struggling a bit in the tournament. But, um, you know, he's worked hard. He's, he's done his part. He's doing the dirty work. Um, you know, he's fouling Eden Hazard at the top of the box and not getting called. <laughs> but he, he's, he's been everything that you want from a striker other than the goals. So like you said, top to bottom, best team in the league or best team in the tournament, best team in the world. And if they win, they'll be uh, well-deserved champions. Yeah. And the fact that they didn't even have to bring Benzema, Lacazette, Martial, Payet, all, I mean, Benzema was their top scorer at the world cup in 2014. Payet was their superstar at the Euro at the European championships in France two years ago. Martial was seen as this, the next up and coming French star until Kylian Mbappe stole the show two years ago in the champions league with Monaco and even not taking Lacazette who was, you know, on the rise at Lyon gets signed by Arsenal has an okay season in his first year with the Gunners. But yeah, the, the depth that they have, even with the team that they didn't take ridiculous as that's uh yeah yeah i was gonna say i think if if they didn't make it this far i think Deschamps would have would have been in for for a rough summer um because some of the the squad the squad uh makeup that he did with leaving out you know he has no other natural striker so i think if mbappe isn't the revelation that he is or that he's become at this world cup if he doesn't explode onto the scene like he has then i think uh he would Deschamps would have 
to answer a lot of questions at home, and he's probably out of a job by now. So, um, you know, maybe he saw something special in Mbappe, and he uh, he chose for you know he chose Squad Harmony over bringing in some of the superstars. You know, whatever whatever he's doing, it's working. So, uh, you know, he's found the right mixture. Definitely, and Didier Deschamps is going to try and become the third man to win the World Cup as a player and a coach, joining uh, Brazil's Mario Zagallo and Germany's Franz Beckenbauer. Beckenbauer winning the World Cup in 74 as the captain of West Germany and then leading them in 1990 to the World Cup title in Italy. So that's the conclusion of our World Cup part of the Road to Moscow podcast. We're actually going to talk about a non-World Cup-related topic in this podcast because the biggest name in world football switched teams. Cristiano Ronaldo is on Juventus, and he was bought for about a hundred million pounds, unbelievable move, Khaled. I did not see this one coming. You know, there was some rumors a couple weeks ago. I thought it was just you know the usual, uh, you know, the thing that that Ronaldo and Messi do every summer. It seems where they're agitating for a new bigger contract. So I, I, I waved that off, but it started to build momentum, and you know, before we know it, we're going to see uh, a, a you know a party in a party in Turin with uh, with Ronaldo in a Juventus jersey. That's, I mean, that to me, the con, just conceptualizing that, I still can't get wrapped it around my head. You know, Ronaldo st- started the decade of the 2010s in a Real Madrid shirt. He's going to end it in a Juventus shirt. But I think when you when you break down the move in terms of Ronaldo's career, this is the right move. He's been the best player in England, the toughest league in Europe, won a Champions League with Manchester United. He became the greatest Real Madrid player of all time. Their all-time top scorer won them four Champions Leagues, won them La Ligas, and Spain, the toughest, the second toughest league in Europe. Now he's going to the third toughest league in Europe, to Juventus, a team that hasn't won a Champions League since 1996. He's got a four-year contract there, probably going to be there from the ages of 33 to 37 before he probably goes to the MLS, plays for Beckham's Miami team. Can Ronaldo do it for Juventus? I think he can. I don't know if he can do it for 2019, but at least within the four years of his contract. Yeah, I mean, he's he's a big game player. He lives for the Champions League. You know, even last season we saw Real, they kind of punted uh, the league and just focused on the Champions League. And, you know, he lives for the big occasion. He's, he's always trying to put himself front and center. And on a team like Juventus where... You know, Serie A is not quite a formality, but, um, you know, they don't have too many serious challengers. Then I think they can focus on on uh, on Europe and I think they can save him for those matches. You know, it, it's very possible. I mean, this is what he does. He wins the Champions League. And if he wins it with three clubs in three different countries, I think then you can you can stamp it that he's had the, the better he has the better legacy in terms of the titles and all that than Messi. I believe he's the better player than Messi. But La Liga is now is very interesting because now you don't have Ronaldo on Madrid. So Madrid's best player just became probably Gareth Bale with Asensio and Isco. Sort of uh, Isco is going to be, you know, a big part of Real Madrid now. Asensio's coming through the ranks. This is going to be the first La Liga season for Barcelona in a more than maybe what 20 years without Xavi and Iniesta. And Messi, this is the first time he's ever going to be playing without either of those two guys in his midfield. And you've got Atletico, who get Antoine Griezmann back. Who's going to be the favorite for La Liga? Because all these teams, you know, got you know cut up with some key players. While Atletico added, you know, they got Thomas Lamar, they re-signed Lucas Hernandez, and Real Madrid could be getting either Neymar, Mbappe, or Hazard. 
Yeah, so I, you know, I wouldn't make the call now. I'd wait, uh, you know, another month or maybe at least till the end of July because, uh, you know, Perez has has and Real Madrid. They got a bunch of money to spend, and they're going to spend it, whether that's uh, on Neymar and Mbappe, like you said, Hazard or or somebody else out there. Um, who knows? But you know, I've seen a lot of memes of uh, you know people making fun of Florentino Perez where he's counting money or. Uh, you know, drooling at the thought of uh, of watching, uh, you know, Belgium, France, of, of who he's going to buy, you know, who the next Galactico is. So, you know, Real Madrid is the type of club that they need a global superstar. And, you know, call credit to Isco and Asensio and Gareth Bale and Marcelo and all these big names, but none of them are even in the same galaxy uh, as Ronaldo or Messi. So, uh, you know, they're going to splash the cash. They're going to make a big move, I think, in the next couple weeks once the World Cup wraps up. And then, you know, you can get back to me on, on who the favorite's going to be. It's going to be a very interesting La Liga season. It's also going to be a very interesting Champions League season because there is the possibility now that we could see Real Madrid or Barcelona not win it. The last time a non-Spanish team won the Champions League was Bayern Munich in 2013. And now you've got Manchester City getting Riyad Mahrez to add that extra depth and attack, make them even better for the season and even better for the Champions League. I think as of right now, if you had to pick the Champions League winner today... I might actually pick Manchester City because we don't know who Madrid's going to buy. We don't know if whoever they do get will gel with the other players and also with the new manager in, uh, in Julian Lopetegui. You've got Barcelona without Iniesta. Manchester City is loading up their roster. Bayern Munich is having some problems in the Champions League, just getting to the semis or even to the yeah. final. And, you know, Liverpool, who knows if Salah, Firmino, and Mane can duplicate what they did last season. But you add Fabinho, you add Nabi Keita... What, who's Manchester United going to buy? What are we going to see from Juventus with Ronaldo if they lose Dybala or they lose Higuain? We don't know. But if you had to pick the favorite for the Champions League today, who would you pick? Why not Juventus? <laughs> I mean, uh, I, I read that, that the 100 million, or 100 million pound move for Ronaldo can be paid over two years or three years even. So, uh, you know, some of the, the early reports were that uh, they would have to sell off somebody like Dybala or or Iguain to pay for this pay for this Ronaldo move. But the fact that they can spread it out over three years, it'll give them time to to get some sponsorships and all kinds of we know whatever sponsors that Ronaldo attracts, and he can get any any company he wants to put his face on their product. So uh, they'll have plenty of time. They'll have plenty of money, I think, to to build around him, and plenty of time to build around him. So you know, why not Juventus? Why not Juventus? Yeah, I could see I could see Juventus as uh, they might be the favorites for the Champions League. The landscape of world football changing in the span of 48 hours. You know, Ronaldo's at Juventus. We got Croatia and France playing for the World Cup title. Riyad Mahrez goes to City. Leicester paid 450k to get Mahrez, and they sold him for 60 million. Unbelievable. Antonio Conte just left Chelsea as the manager. I just saw that breaking news this morning. As you're listening to this podcast, it was probably broke around, you know, an hour and a half ago by the time you hear this. So lots of stuff changing in world football. And uh, it, when the World Cup ends, it's going to be sad. Hopefully we get a good final. I'll be really sad about it. But, you know, at least we got some preseason action to keep us going. And then the Premier League season starts in less than a month. And then La Liga is going to start soon. Ronaldo is going to make his competitive Juventus debut soon. It's exciting. It's an exciting, exciting time in world football. Football never stops, man. 24-7, 365. If there, you know, you can find a game on at any time of day, uh, anywhere you live. And if you can't find a game, then, uh, you know, there's plenty to read and plenty of rumors and all kinds of stuff. So it, it, it never stops, never sleeps.
Never stops, never sleeps. And we're got we're not gonna never stop, never sleep with this podcast just to give you an update on what's gonna happen after the World Cup ends. We will have one final podcast with me and Esteban, uh, basically talking about the final, talking about our favorite moments of the World Cup. A lot of content coming out from the topflight.com after the World Cup, and then uh, we're going to go into a regular podcast schedule. We will announce the dates of that in our next podcast. But uh, one thing that we can tell you, we will be doing season previews for every single English Premier League team. That's 20 previews, just like we did for the World Cup, a preview for every team, and then a nice big giant preview predicting the entire season and the best players, You know, the, who's going to be the best transfer, who's going to be the top goal scorer, as we are going to be continuing the Top Flight podcast for the Premier League season. Exciting times ahead. So thank you, Khaled, for joining me. Thank you for having me. All right. So for, for Khaled Abdallah, I'm Ori Benatar. Thank you for listening to this edition of The Road to Moscow here on the Top Flight Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.